Take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Matthew. Uh, We have uh, been out of our series uh, that uh, we've been focusing in on. Uh, We took a break for the Christmas uh, season, and uh, we're getting back into it. And uh, for those who haven't been around for a while, we've been in a series, a pretty lengthy series, uh, looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, a sermon by uh, Jesus Christ himself uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Uh, We have been studying what Jesus clearly articulates are the demands that he has for those who call themselves uh, Christians. And in the first part of our series, uh, back in the fall, we looked at what we called our kingdom attitudes. And uh, we studied uh, the first 12 verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and uh, looking at what he calls are the Beatitudes and uh, looking at what it means to have an attitude like that of Christ Jesus. In the second part of our series, we've been looking, which we're in right now, the kingdom actions that come. We know that living in the kingdom isn't just a mindset, but it's also us living out in action, being truly the salt and light in the world. And most recently, we've been amidst these actions that we've been seeing Jesus restructuring the calling of his believers to live very differently than the lives that the Pharisees of his day were prescribing. And the kingdom lifestyles that Jesus was talking about, what he was calling us as his people to follow, was to radically change the way we looked at our and lived in our approach to things like anger and lust. Next week we'll talk about commitments and oaths. We'll talk about revenge and retaliation in in a couple weeks. And then we'll learn three weeks from now that we are not only called as Christ followers to love our our family and friends, but our neighbors alike and even our most hated of enemies, that we are to love them as God has has loved us. And each of these, Jesus is going to turn our world upside down. And that's why we've entitled this series An Upside Down Kingdom. Because if we look at it from a worldly perspective, we would say what Jesus is teaching us is completely contrary to what we know in our own society and in the days that we live in. And no greater place does he turn Uh, our understanding upside down and call us to some upside down living than in the text that's before us, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, because he speaks on the issue of divorce, and more broadly, Jesus is going to answer some questions with regards to the issue of marriage. Now, here at Village Bible Church, we love the scriptures, and we love investing the vast majority of our time Uh, studying the scriptures in a systematic verse-by-verse way. And so maybe you've come today and uh, you you said, okay, the first time I come to church and they're going to talk about something, they're going to judge people um, that have been divorced. And, And I want you to know that we've come to this text, not subjectively, but objectively, because this is the next part of the passage. We've been studying this since uh, the first part of the fall, and uh, we now come to what is the next part of the passage. And so if your heart goes on and say, why does Tim need to talk about divorce? Doesn't he know that that's a sensitive subject matter and that those who have been divorced are going to feel really hot under the collar? If you've been around Village for a long time, when you preach the Bible verse by verse, someone will inevitably feel hot under the collar every week. Okay? And, uh, and so we need to recognize that when we approach this, yeah, today may be a day where uh, this may be hitting closer to home. Well, I can tell you that there were some, and maybe not yourself, that a couple weeks ago when we talked on the subject of lust were feeling it. And then the week beforehand who were struggling with anger who were feeling it. Uh, we deal with this. And yet, I want to be very clear that this issue of divorce is one that grips and in fact rips at the heart 
uh, of every human being. And one study says that the emotional duress uh, that comes from a divorce is equal to that of the grief of a death of a loved one. Studies tell us that in a group this size, that the vast, the vast majority of us have been impacted in one way, shape, or form by a divorce. And many of us firsthand have experienced the flood of emotions that comes from such an ordeal. Yet amidst the pain and the sorrow that this issue brings, and I recognize that this morning and sympathize as I preach this, that we must recognize that God saw fit to speak to this issue. Jesus saw it as an important issue in his day and in our day today. Now you say, well, why does the church need to talk about divorce? Aren't we all wonderful, happy, smiling people who are all happily married? A Barna study recently told us that 27% of non-denominational evangelical church attenders are divorced, a couple percentage points higher than the national average of non-believers. So how did we get there? How did we get to a place that divorce would be such a rampant thing in our society and even in our churches? Well, I would say that we've made marriage something far short of what God intended for it to be. We have thrown out the Creator's guidebook to the joy and contentment that is to be found in the companionship of marriage. We have said that there are many different ways that we can form a family and that we've said that marriage is something that is to be thrown away and, and not to be anything of value. Now, we do this a couple different ways. Right now in the Mexican legislature, they are not redefining as we are here in America the definition of marriage. They are talking about the duration of marriage. And right now a bill in the legislature is wanting to shorten the time that marriage takes place. And so one of the things that you will do if this law passes is that a young couple will go to, receive, to get a marriage license and they will at that moment determine together how long they are going to remain married to one another. And so there will be a term of marriage. And so you would say, uh, let's say Amanda and I are going to get married. We're a young couple. We would say, okay, you know, how long do I think I can stay true to these vows? I think four years. I think three years. I think ten years. It is determined on the fact of what the husband and wife say. And then your marriage license, like many licenses, run out and you have to renew it. And so that's one way that they're wanting to do it is to redefine the duration of the marriage and that goes against God's word. Of course, we know, and it's alive and well in our country today, that we want to redefine marriage and who is a part of the marriage. Now, not to say that that issue has been uh, dealt with. We know states and nation, the nation are dealing with this, uh, and we hear about it every day in the news uh, of what is going on, of what this definition of marriage is. Let me tell you, Hollywood has already moved on from the issue of same-sex marriage. Hollywood's moved on to something else. I was watching TV yesterday in a trailer for a new movie that is being acclaimed as the picture of the year uh, came on the screen and I wanted to vomit by the time this, this trailer was done. The, the movie is in theaters now. It's entitled Her and it has some of the leading actors and actresses in it. And what it is, is a, it's a story about a man who has recently gotten a divorce and is now going back out to play the field to find a new spouse, to find a new love. And he can't find it. And there's all kinds of people that are brought into his life, and uh, he cannot find love. And around that same time, a new computer technology comes out, an operating system that learns who you are and learns all of your dreams, desires, aspirations, your schedule, all of that, that literally becomes everything from your alarm clock to your reminder to, in even many ways, it becomes a companion. 
Well, what happens is the main character starts seeing that he can't find human love, okay? And he falls in love with his computer. Now you laugh and you say, well, that, how could that be? They do not make it a comedy. It is an absolute love story. Listen to me, to the absolute grotesque part where the main character will take a friend and use her as a surrogate to have physical intimacy with the computer. At the end of the trailer, and you can go back and see this, uh, at the end of the trailer, the main character says, I loved you like I've never loved anyone else. Can I tell you, if I was God looking down at the absolute stupidity of man, I would have destroyed us all a long time ago. And I'm not pointing at anybody. I'm saying all of us, the whole human race. Are you kidding me? Are you absolutely, is this where we're at with regards to marriage that now it's not even the issue of same sex, which we've addressed over and over again, but now we're saying now we're going to marry computers? I mean, if this is where we are at, we are in a sad, sad place. What a terrible, terrible thing Hollywood is doing to the issue of marriage. And yet, you would say, well, that's in the here and now. Well, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the issue of marriage wasn't something that started falling apart 15, 20 years ago. It wasn't when America took on the no-fault divorce But in the first century Jewish culture, divorce was an issue that was just as passionate, just as combative as it is today. And we need Jesus' teaching on marriage and the epidemic that's destroying this God-given covenant. And so I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask that you would humbly open your hearts to the Word of God this morning. We come with so many presuppositions to this. We've already got our position. And you're going to hear your pastor's position on this subject matter. And I'm going to tell you, if you are like the first service, some in this place will become angry and will want to leave. Okay? Because here's the luxury. You don't get to see your guys' responses, but I do. Okay? And I will tell you, there were some people in the first service who were not too happy with where your pastor was at. And I'm not looking for sympathy because here's what I know. I know what the Word of God says. I'm going to stand on it. And if you don't like it, take it up with my boss. Okay? So here's the thing. Okay? Don't clap. Okay, that's great. Wonderful. Let's move on. All right. So, So here's the thing. This is what I want you to do. I want you to grab your pen. I want you to grab a piece of paper. And I want you to grab the Word of God. And if you have a hard time looking through the Bible, I want you to grab the Pew Bible in front of you because I'm going to give you the Scriptures because if if you're going to argue with anybody, I want you to leave this place today arguing with the Bible, not your pastor. Okay? And so everything I say, I'm going to back up with Scripture and I'm going to help you understand what the Bible says in a very objective way, what the Scripture says. But we've got to go to where we're at right now in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Let's stand for its reading and then we'll ask for God's blessing on our time. Here's what the Word of God says. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, grab that Pew Bible, page 810. I'll give you a second to get there because I don't want you to miss it. Page 810 is where our text is before us. And here's what our King, our Lord, our Savior Jesus says on this very, very difficult subject matter. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, two verses. How could two verses cause so much consternation, not only in the world, but in the house of God? 
Lord, we want to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that I would become less and you would become more. Let me decrease so that you may increase and that the people of God may hear from their Lord and not another man. To you be the glory, honor, and praise for what is shared here tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As Keith said, time is not my friend, so I'm going to jump right into our outline. And I want you to follow along and write down the passages that I share with you. If we want to understand Jesus' understanding of, of the subject of divorce and remarriage, we must first of all recall a confrontation surrounding divorce. Now right away, you will say, Tim, in Matthew chapter 5, there's no confrontation. Jesus is talking and people are listening. There's no debate. Nobody's questioning it. And I will tell you, in Jesus' words, a confrontation is established. Notice in verse 31, the opening words of the verse is the statement, it was also said. This is the third of six confronting statements Jesus is going to make in this section of the sermon. Notice, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now fast forward to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 31, it was also said. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. In verse 38, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so what Jesus is doing over and over again is saying, you've heard something preached and taught to you, but I'm going to reorder it. I'm going to restructure it because what you are being told is just plain wrong. And it is unfitting, what Jesus is saying is unfitting for a follower of a mind to live according to the way of the rabbis and Pharisees as they were teaching the law. And this is so clearly seen in the issue of divorce. Now, when Jesus speaks to this issue, there's no question that people perked up as people are perked up in their listening today because they knew what their popular rabbis were saying. And what they wanted to know was this new Jesus, who's done some pretty cool things up to this point, who's gotten incredibly popular, where does he stand on this issue? To understand that, we have to then ask the first question is, what was the culture of the times? In the first century, so write that down in your outlines, the culture of the time. In the first century, Israel had two prevailing thoughts surrounding the issue of divorce. The first one was by a very popular rabbi, Hillel. Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. And when I mean any reason, I mean any reason. Josephus, the secular historian, not a follower of Jesus Christ, summed up the the position of Hillel that a man, a Jewish man, could divorce his wife if she burned his breakfast. If she said something that was uh, mean about the man's mother. Okay? You just can't talk about a man's mother that way. And so the man could pursue divorce. If the man thought that you were beautiful at one moment, but now as years have gone, you're not as pretty as he thought you were going to be, the man could then uh, get a certificate of divorce. And what Hillel said was, just make sure that when you divorce, that you dot all your I's, you cross all your T's, you get that bill of divorcement down. That's the important thing. Get the certificate right, do your due diligence in the certificate, and then you can divorce whenever and whomever you want to. That's all you got to do. So it was the first no-fault divorce. Really, it was her-fault divorce, okay? 
and, and then that would take place. Divorce would happen, you're all good. Just make sure you, you do a good job with the certificate. Can I tell you that today in America, the teaching of Rabbi Hillel is alive and well. Just get the bill of divorce. And we're real big. You can't have more than one wife at a time. Just make sure you get the bill of divorce. Now, there was another camp in Jesus' day. And it was under the rabbi whose name was Shammai. Shammai was a little more conservative. And he said that divorce could take place on the grounds of something far more severe than what Hillel had said. He said it, it involved adultery. And these two groups would debate. And so, yes, you could get a certificate of divorce if you found out that your wife had committed uh, adultery. And so here these two groups are the, wage, or the warring groups, okay, waging war with one another. And then there's Jesus. Now, Jesus is giving his positions on things. Here's where I'm at with regards to the law. He's already said, I'm not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And here's how I fulfill the law with some of the main uh, issues of the day. And so to understand where Jesus is at on the teaching, we have to understand not only the culture of the times, what was going on, we have to understand the context of the law's teaching. Now before we blindly, and a lot of us blindly dive into this debate, because many of you say, I don't agree with Halal, but I agree with Shammai. Sexual immorality, uh, that is adultery, nullifies the marriage. Well before you do that, you have to ask the question, where are they even getting the beginning of this debate. Where is this debate stemming from? You have to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. So hold your hand or put your piece of paper in the uh, Matthew chapter 5 passage and turn to the beginning of the Bible, the fifth book of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If you've got a pew Bible, that's page 165. And I want you to get there, because I don't want you just to take my word for it. I want you to see what the Scripture says. Because the crux of the debate between Hillel, Shammai, and now Jesus is how do you interpret Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Here's what the text says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. So let's just stop there, okay? We'll get to the rest of that section of Scripture. The question that Hillel and Shammai are dealing with, and now Jesus has to deal with, is what is the meaning in chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, of a husband finding no favor in his wife because of some indecency? That's the crux of the, the matter. What does indecency involve? Hillel said, it's whatever the husband determined that he was unhappy with. Shammai said that indecency was adultery. This might come to a surprise to you, but I think that Jesus disagrees completely with both rabbis. And if we affirm one of the rabbis, our application to the issue of marriage and divorce will be completely flawed. And that's why Jesus is in disagreement with both. So let's, let's say Jesus agrees with Hillel. And say, okay, well, the Hillel people say, yeah, Jesus is with us. Well, he's not, because right away he says, anyone who uh, 
divorces his wife and remarries another, uh, causes their spouse to commit adultery. Okay? So right away, and then he uses the term, I don't want to miss this, except for the grounds of sexual immorality. So right away he has harnessed Hillel's teaching and said, Hillel, you're wrong, okay? The popular preacher of the day is wrong because it has to be, first of all, on the issue of sexual immorality. So then the Shammai people are like, yay, Jesus is with us. He's with us, and so we can follow Shammai, and Jesus is right along with Shammai. Jesus follows no one, okay? Jesus is the king. People follow him. And Jesus is going to show us that he does not agree with Shammai either. Now that is going to be a real big pushback uh, from some of you because you'll say, wait a minute, I have always been under the uh, uh, understanding that adultery nullifies the marriage covenant. And I would ask the question, where? Because as we look at Deuteronomy 24, we have to allow scripture to interpret scripture. So stick with Deuteronomy 24 and turn for a moment to Leviticus chapter 20. You're going to go a couple pages back now to the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Okay? On page, uh, let's see here, page 98 in your pew Bible. So here we got Leviticus 20.10. And write these passages down so you can look to them later. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be what? Put to death. Okay. Now go back to Deuteronomy, back to page 164, and go to Deuteronomy 22.22. Deuteronomy 22.22, page 164, tells us, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, now it's not just your neighbor, but it's any man, okay? Both of them shall, help me out, die, okay? The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So, if we are going to interpret, we now recognize that Hillel's wrong, okay? That's not the case at all. Now we're dealing with Shammai's interpretation. Does sexual immorality, adultery, and by the way, all, sin, uh, all sexual activity of a married person that is outside the marriage covenant, no matter what it is, is adultery. Let me make this clear, because it wasn't too long ago we had a, a, a president say, well, it depends on the definition of what is is. Is means adultery, okay? All sexual activity, okay, which means kissing and, and carousing and all of that is one form of adultery or another for the married individual. All sexual activity in the marriage is between a husband and wife, case closed. So, if we agree with Shammai, and stick with me, this is so very crucial. If we agree with Shammai, if that's what Jesus is saying, because he says in the exception clause, <clears throat> excuse me, except for uh, sexual immorality, then what is going to happen is the Jewish people who read Deuteronomy 24 are going to stop and say, wait a minute, Moses. You just told us in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, that if someone commits adultery, what happens? Help me. Dead. Now you say in Deuteronomy 24, 1, they're not dead, write them a certificate of divorce. Do you see the doublespeak that would be going on here? 
If sexual, uh, if adultery is the grounds for divorce, there's no reason for a bill of divorce because the spouse is dead. Okay? And you can remarry then. You don't need to give a, how do you give a divorce or a dead person divorce papers? You, you, it's dumb. The covenant's it's done. It's, it's taken care of. And so, what in the world then does Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 and the, the preceding verses there mean? The only way we can take that is to understand, again, the culture of the day. Now, in America, if we take the American culture and try, and this is what we do often, and we are doing a disservice to the Scriptures, if we take our times and form the biblical text according to our times, we're wrong. What we need to do is take our times and form it to the culture of those days to understand the real understanding of the text. In Near East, Middle Eastern culture, of which I'm a byproduct. Many of you know my dad comes from the land of Iraq, and so we carry a lot of Middle Eastern traditions in our place that are very similar to those of Judaism. Within the marriage covenant, there was a time that is called a betrothal, the engagement period. Now, we have made that absolutely nothing. What engagement means is glorified dating, okay, in in the American culture. And really what it is is it gives the bride and the groom some time to put a real nice party together, okay, to get things in order. In the Middle Eastern culture and in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, the engagement began the marriage. But it was in a, a parenthesis, if you will. So what would take place and what transpires in Middle Eastern cultures today and even in some African cultures is that the groom would find someone he likes, okay? He would take his father and he would himself go to the bride's father and say, I have put my eyes upon your daughter and I want her to be my wife. The, the dad of the bride says, that sounds great, okay, what are you going to do for it? How are you going to prove to me that you are going to be a capable husband? Because here's the thing. I am going to release my uh, providing and nurturing and caring for this girl. And I'm going to put her in your hands. So, groom, you're going to have to prove to me that you're able to do this. And one of the ways that the groom would do it is he would say, Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to come into a contract. And the father of the groom, the groom, and the father of the bride would come together and say, okay, if ABC, XYZ is accomplished, when those things are accomplished, you come back and show me proof of those things being done, I will give you my wife. Now, one of the first things that was, and it's still a part of Judaism today, when a Jewish couple gets married, they sign a ketubah. A ketubah is a marriage contract. That ketubah is once and for all ratified on the day of the marriage ceremony, but it is begun and written up the day of the engagement. So here we see that Jesus talks about this over and over again because one of the first things that would be a part of any ketubah at that time would be the idea that the man would go and prepare a place for his wife to have a home. Does that sound familiar? For I go to prepare a place for you. And once that pace is prepared, I will come back and take you to be with me always. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 14 that as a bridegroom, he is saying, hey, I am in an engagement place with you as the church. I'm leaving to go to my father's house, prepare the house for you. When it's done, I'm going to come back and get you. And so what would happen is, is the ketubah would be a time anywhere from six to 18 months. There would be that time of engagement. And what 
the groom would do is he would give his best friend, he's the best man. Do you see how our connection, how we take these things, the best man, all he's got to do is throw a party for the groom and hold a ring here in our culture. What the best man did was the best man was the trusted friend of the groom who would be left to guarantee that the wife, the bride, was ready and prepared and fulfilled her side of the contract when the groom came. Jesus says that my best man, Jesus says in the opening chapters of John, was John the Baptist. He was preparing the bride for the coming of the groom. Okay? So Jesus is using this betrothal language all over the place. Then what would happen is, is at a time unknown to the bride and her family, the groom would come. And he would come with the uh, blowing of horns and the shouts of people. And again, we hear Jesus say to his bride, yeah, I'm coming back. With the sound of the trumpet and with the voice of many angels, I'm coming back at a time that you don't know, bride. And you better be ready. And so the job of the bride was that she was to be ready at all times. She never knew when her groom was going to come that she would be prepared. And so she would prepare a bunch of maids who would come around her that at a moment's notice when they heard the clamor that groom has come, the bride said, I need help. My hair needs to be done. I need to be perfumed. I need to be ready because by the time my groom gets to the door, I better be ready for him. Do you see the connection, all of the eschatological connections that the betrothal period brings? And so Jesus is saying in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, the following. If that groom comes to the house and the best man or someone comes and says, Hey, by the way, before you fulfill the last aspect of this marital contract, you need to understand your, your fiancé has been whoring around. She's been all over the place. She's got men coming and going. She is acting in all ways immodestly. And I just want you to know this before you sign off and before you consummate it. Now, here's where our culture is very much different. We consummate the marriage after the fact. We call that the honeymoon. In Jewish culture and in Middle Eastern culture, the ratifying of that ketubah was the sexual union between the husband and wife. That happened, here's the thing, that happened at the, at the time where the groom came to the house of the woman. They would say, the groom has come. He's come to take his bride. He would take her into the bedroom chamber while everybody's waiting, a little freaky, while everybody's waiting, okay? And he would come out and he would say one of two things. She's been with someone or she has been decent and wholesome and good, I take her as my wife. And it was from that point on that what God in the presence of witnesses had put together, no man could separate. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim. Okay, this, this, give me some proof of this. Okay, so I got to give you some proof. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In your pew Bible, that's page 807. Page 807. Why in the world does Jesus give this exception clause if, Tim, you're saying that adultery does not nullify the marriage and cause grounds for divorce? Here's what we need to understand about the Christmas story. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been what? Betrothed, engaged. 
to Joseph, before they had come together, before they had consummated, the, the ketubah had been signed. It, uh, Joseph had gone at some point to be engaged to his uh, bride, uh, Mary. At some point, Joseph, we don't know when, but some point during that betrothal period, before he had covenanted, closed that covenant with her by consummation of sexual union, he found out she was with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to what? Divorce her. Okay? Now, wait a minute. They're not married yet. Aha. To get out of a betrothal contract meant you had to present to the father of the bride a a, a certificate of divorce. What it meant, and here's the thing, why a certificate of divorce? Because she's not committed adultery. She's committed fornication. She's committed sexual activity outside uh, of the marriage bond. And so here's the thing. Those, who, those of, uh, of us who are, un, who are unmarried right now, who are engaged in sexual activity, that's not adultery. That's fornication. It's sexual immorality. Okay? And so Joseph, a just man, says, I'm going to divorce her. I'm going to do what the law allows. Deuteronomy 24.1 says, I can divorce her. But why is he called a righteous man? Not only did he live by the law, but he was gracious that he says, I'll do it quietly. I'm not going to make a public spectacle of my fiance. She has obviously made a terrible decision. She's gotten pregnant, and therefore I am, I am going to divorce her. Now notice what the scripture goes on to say. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Wait a minute, he's going to divorce her. Well, she's not his wife yet because they haven't consummated yet. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets. So, in Matthew, now let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. What Jesus is articulating is that the grounds for divorce, according to the Mosaic law, was the following. If you were in a betrothal period, and you found out that your spouse had been unfaithful, you could write, you were permitted by the law of Moses to write a certificate of divorce for that person. Outside of that, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, that if you divorce for any other reason, notice what the text says, you make your spouse to commit adultery, and whoever marries that divorced spouse of yours commits adultery themselves. And so now we have to then ask the question, well, where does divorce come from? Notice the cause of divorce. The cause of divorce. In Matthew 19, write this passage down. We're not going to go to it. But in Matthew 19, we see the cause of divorce is the hardness of man's heart. It's sin. And so as a believer, any time we approach divorce... We are going outside of the will and plan of God, which is marriage once and for all. And we're going and we're choosing selfishness for whatever reason over sacrifice. We're choosing uh, instead of, uh, we're choosing enjoyment instead of endurance. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Tim. I'm still not okay with this issue because it says except for sexual immorality. I've got to be able to divorce my spouse if they go and sleep with another. Herein lies the problem. Look at the text. 
and understand what the original text tells us. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, that is the Greek word porneia. It is the most generic and uh, broad-based word for sexual immorality that there is. And he says the following, if anyone divorces except on the grounds of porneia, makes her commit adultery, is the Greek word mokia. So this is how the original would sound. Except on the ground of porneia, makes her commit mokia, and whoever married a divorced woman commits mokia. Now let's stop there for a moment. Okay, Tim, you're saying that adultery does not give grounds for divorce. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here's why. Because what does the word porneia mean? Porneia was used in very broad terms to mean it's where we get the word prostitute from. It's the word we get pornography from. And herein lies the problem. Go just a couple verses back to verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. If we believe that sexual immorality causes adultery, and adultery is the grounds for divorce, you have heard it said in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what Jesus just did if he gives the clause for adultery be to the grounds of divorce? Based on his words just a couple verses beforehand, he in essence has said, everybody can get divorced. Because a couple weeks ago we said that there's probably very few people in this world who have not lusted after another person at some time or some place, Right? And Jesus has already condemned them and said that lustful thought is adultery itself. So Amanda has full ability to, uh, to divorce me because lust has been in my background and I'm okay to confess that before you. But here's the other problem. Once we say that sexual morality is grounds for divorce, then we have to ask the question. Is it unrepentant sexual immorality? Is it a one-time act? Is it a multiple act? Is it multiple times? Jesus never defines that. And so for us to say, well, what it means is unrepentant sexual immorality, we are going outside of Scripture and defining something that Jesus said on our own terms, not someone else's. Or on, 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 not on our, or on our terms, not Jesus's. And so Jesus gives no clarification as to what he is addressing with sexual morality. But if we go back to Deuteronomy 24 and we put it within the betrothal period, everything's fine. Marriage is between a man and a woman for all of life. And the only opportunity you get to divorce is to divorce your engaged spouse, okay, within their context, because a man is commanded not to divorce his wife. So then we need to ask, okay, we see the real cause then notice, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19 for a moment. When Jesus is pushed into this argument, he says it at his own free will in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 19, he articulates something that we need to recognize. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, it says, The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There's the Hillel, the Hillel idea. Notice how he answers. Here's the thing. We want to have this game about when we can divorce and when we can't. And for the world, it totally makes sense. For believers, it makes no sense at all. Because what we are doing is the opposite of what Jesus does. When Jesus was asked about divorce, notice in verse 4 what he says. Have you not read that he created, who he created... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, Jesus, where are you on in divorce? It doesn't happen. What God puts together, let no man separate. Now, there's a couple things we need to understand about Jesus' celebration of marriage. Write that down. There's a couple things. When Jesus wants to, when people want to talk about divorce, Jesus wants to talk marriage. And there's a couple things that we need to understand about marriage of what Jesus says. There are two specific partners, male and female. Not male and a computer. Okay? Not male and male. Not female and female. Male and female. But Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. Baloney. He created them male and female. A man will leave his house and make his wife with him one flesh. So here's the thing. You need to understand that the Bible is clear on the issue of same-sex marriage. It is clear that marriage is for a man and a woman for a lifetime. Now, that means, by the way, that if you ever thought Tim was going to run for political office, that just because that just went out on a, on a CD, I'm done. Okay? So I'll stick with being a pastor, okay? Because you, you can't say that and, and think you're going to win an election these days, it seems. Number two, it's pivotal to the family. The reason why it's pivotal is, think about it, I have three sons. And my three sons are going to come after your daughters, okay? At some point, they are going to come to you and they are going to say, Hey, Mr. So-and-so, I think your daughter is pretty neat, Okay? And here's what I want to do. I want to take her from you. And I want to do unspeakable things that you never tell the future father-in-law. I'm going to take her. I'm going to make out of her a family of myself. Okay? Here's what I'm, I'm going to do. Now think about that. That is a violent thing. I'm stealing your daughter. That is why, listen to me, people ask, why don't I own guns? I have three sons. If I had three daughters, I would have three guns. Okay? So this is what I want you to understand. That's a violent thing. And it is something, listen to me, dads of daughters and that of sons. It should be a jealous thing of yours. Because you have invested since birth into that girl's life. And the question is, isn't, hey, what is this guy? You should have a hundred questions for that guy. Amen. <laughs> See, that's, that's a dad of a daughter, okay? And you should be questioning long and hard, who is this guy? He's coming in and he's going to take the one that I've invested all my time and energy in and he's going to take her and start a family of his own. That's stealing. But marriage, the Bible says, that's a good thing. Why? Because if there isn't that stealing agreed upon, then the family becomes a swamp. Because no one comes and goes. And what we know is that when marriage is done right, and when the mom and dad on both sides do a good job of preparing these children for marriage, then, then the joy of grandchildren comes. And the joy of celebrating and sharing in the twilight years of your life, the goodness of a new marriage, seeing that what my marriage did was create the opportunity for more marriages, is a beautiful and wonderful legacy of every marriage. And so what takes place is that it is to be something that is pivotal to the family. And notice it is to be passionate. It is that the two will become one flesh. Jesus is alluding to the sexual union between the husband and the wife. And so let me tell you something. For those that are married right now and think that you are fulfilling God's covenant in a cold and sexless marriage, you've got another thing coming. 
The Bible says you need to be involved in that sexual union, no matter your age, no matter what it is. Now, I understand there's a lot of implications to that, but the Bible says that a good Christian marriage is a sexual one. They're going to be passionate with one another. And notice, it's a permanent relationship. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, here's the thing. We get why the world doesn't give a rip about what God says. But why in the world as Christians do we come up with all these ideas of what constitutes a biblical divorce? Why would we say, well, what God put together, let no man separate except for, and except for this, this, and this. And I will tell you, once you open up for one exception, then you've made something that was permanent, not permanent at all. And what we're learning is, is the church is going down the same road that the world is, that we open the door a little bit, and then we get all mad, and here's the hypocrisy of the church. We didn't give a rip about divorce years ago. But now we give a real rip about uh, same-sex marriage. Well, now they're redefining it. We redefined marriage a whole long time ago. And the church did it as long as well as the world did. And so that's why here at Village Bible Church, we take this seriously. And that's why to be a member of this church, you have to sign a commitment with you to the other members of this church to commit to one very important thing, to commit to the preservation of marriage above all else. And here's the thing. If you don't as a member of this church, and this will sound harsh and that, let me tell you what we do. Right now in this church, there's one man under church discipline. What that means is after, after a year of trying to speak to him to not leave his wife and his children to pursue another relationship, after a year of that, we publicly brought that man before you and told that man he can no longer be in fellowship here until he repents. You think we take this seriously? You betcha. You think that's legalistic? Take that up with God. God says, man shall not separate from his wife. And the church says, and you say, well, that, well that's not nice. I mean, we, aren't we all sinners? Yeah. And so when I sin and I live in unrepentant sin, I, I should be held accountable. I should be disciplined. We take this incredibly seriously. So when I talk about this, I'm not talking per se to everybody, because here's the thing, as a non-member of this church, you can do whatever you want. You've committed nothing to us. You understand that? You're here, we love you, we're glad you're here, you're a Christian, we have no question, but you, you haven't committed that you're going to do anything, so you can come and go as you please. But the members of our church have made a decision, not under any duress of their own, to say here are, uh, I believe it's 16 things that we agree that every good follower of Jesus Christ should commit to, and what I'm saying is known to, no I'm prone to wander, I am asking my fellow members to hold me accountable. That's what church membership is. I'm going to ask for you to hold me accountable. And so I speak to the members, and I tell you that there is no place for you to pursue divorce. No place. And to do so, to lead in the divorce proceedings would be to go against everything that the Bible says about being a child of God and how we are ought to live. Now you say, okay. That's point number one. That's why I need 10 hours. Point number two, and I'll come back to some of these things because we're just going to review the first point. Second point, review the first point. What are the circumstances that allow for remarriage? I am telling you there are two. You can debate me if you want to afterwards, but there are two. Number one is the death of a spouse. Write this passage down. We're not going to spend any time on it. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 through 40. 1 Corinthians 7, 
39 through 40. If your husband dies, the wife is able to remarry. She can marry whoever she chooses only in the Lord. So if Tim dies, Amanda can get remarried. Nobody has any issue with that, okay? Second place that marriage, uh, remarriage is allowed is the destruction of the marriage. Listen to me, not through adultery, not through divorce, but through remarriage. It's through remarriage. If adultery doesn't end the marriage, then surely divorce does, some will say. Well, there's a problem with that. If my spouse, for whatever reason, chooses to divorce me, then yes, my job is to pursue reconciliation. Now, the Bible says if the, if the person chooses to go and marry another, where does that put me? Well, got to go back to Deuteronomy 24 for a moment. So turn back to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 says the following. We have to read the rest of the passage. Deuteronomy 24 says the following. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because she has some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes the wife of another, so there's a second husband now, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." So here's the thing. If your spouse leaves you for a divorce, in, in divorce, you still have reconciliation. There's still an opportunity for reconciliation to happen. All divorce is is a legal separation of a man and a woman. What destroys it is one of the spouses dies or that spouse takes on another. This is some important words for those who are in a second marriage right now. Your second marriage, listen to me, is as binding as the first one was. Okay? Because there was the question, hey, do I, as a believer now, that I'm a believer, shouldn't I go back to my first spouse? Paul says, stay exactly where you are. You're married. You're just as married as Tim and Amanda are in their first marriage, so stay where you are. And so then that leads us then, this short second review here, we get to the third point. Well, what's the third point? What is Jesus trying to help us to understand? We need to then recognize the Bible's teaching with regards to the specific context. And I'm going to limit my time now to just talking to everybody in the room in specific context. What does the Bible say to us? Because if I leave you here, you're going to feel pretty judged right now if you've suffered through a divorce. And so we need to help out our brothers and sisters. In fact, we need to help all of us out. So number one, to the unmarried. To the unmarried. To the single people. Let's start with the single young people in the room. People that have not entered into a first marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, it is better that you remain single. Why? Why would Paul say that? Didn't God say in the beginning it was not good for man to be alone? Why would Paul say that you should remain single as I am, Paul says? The reason why is simple. Because there's a chance that your spouse could divorce you. And that's going to hurt really, really bad. That's going to cut deeper than most cuts in your life. And so if you, here's the thing, single people, the last thing you need to worry about right now is divorce, right? You don't have to worry about divorce. There's no divorce. You're not married to anybody. You can't get divorced what you've not married, okay? 
But we as married people have to worry about that. We have to worry about divorce. We have to wonder, Amanda has to wonder, will Tim remain faithful to me or will he go by the world standards and then go and look for something better, go look for something stupid and go do that and then leave me hanging with three boys? She has to worry about that because of the hardness of man's hearts because Tim's heart is hard at times and he can do some pretty stupid stuff. So Amanda has to worry about that. You don't. So here's the thing. If you're going to marry, the Bible says it's not good for man to have sexual relations with a woman. What that means in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not good for men and women just to sleep around. And so if you have the urge to have sexual relations, where you have those relations is in the confines of marriage. There he says in verse 2 of chapter 7, verse 2, he says, every man should have a wife and every wife should have a husband. That's where you do the sexual activity. Now, you say, okay, well, hey, I got hormones moving and, and, and I know that I can't be celibate and I'm going to be married, so here's my advice to the young people. Pick well because you get one choice. Okay? You get one shot. You see, marriage isn't a big thing if you say, well, I can divorce anybody at any point. And so people get into marriage very callously. And so you say, well, how in the world, Tim, do I do that? How do I pick well when I'm 18 years of age? I, I picked incredibly well when I was 18, and I was a moron, okay? <laughs> I mean, if anybody's ever spent any time with Amanda, you know I married out of my league and then some, okay? How in the world did Tim have enough wisdom to do that? Number one, let me tell you something, and this may sound outdated. Prearranged marriages aren't half bad because it involved mom and dad. And I remember, I don't know why I did, but I had a conversation with my parents and I said, what do you think of Amanda? And you know, they gushed a little bit about her. And they said, but you know what? There's some things that we're concerned about. Yeah, she's great. She's beautiful. She's got a great personality. But she's a new believer. And we want to see some fruit of that relationship with God. And, and there's some things that in how she does stuff. And, and I could have gotten mad and angry. Or I could have said, you know what? Yeah, you know what? Amanda isn't perfect. You see, we get this idea that they're perfect. Because we're blinded and our parents are the ones who are not in love. And, they can, and, and then they know you. And they're like, you know what? Amanda's not as patient as we think she needs to be because you are a moron. Okay? So she needs to learn a little bit. And we're going to tell her about you. Because you've been lying to her this whole time about who you are in dating. Because that's what you do. You lie about who you are. And then you get married. And then the real you comes out. And mom and dad, you need to say, you know what? You need to know about my kid. Now, you don't do it in a defiling way but you do it in a God-honoring way. And here's the thing. Moms and dads, we are more concerned about a stinking wedding ceremony and reception than we are about preparing our children for marriage. And we need to be preparing at a young age. My children need to be hearing what they should be looking for in a wife. And you know who they should be looking for? And I don't mean this as a joke in any way. The boys should be looking for their moms and the girls should be looking for their dads. That they say, you know what? Yeah. My mom is an honoring mom. She loves my dad. She respects my dad. She, she, she takes his needs over her own. She sacrifices. And they need to, girls need to see their dads sacrificing and loving their moms. And that's what they need to be looking for. So you say, well, how do I teach? Where do I start? Start loving your spouse. And your kids will love. Let me tell you something. I married my mom in a lot of ways. And again, my mom and my wife are incredibly different. But my wife loves me as my mom loved my dad. 
And that's the legacy that we need to be living. And you say, well, this is hard stuff. Well, this is why Jesus said it's hard. The disciples later say, who can believe this stuff? This is too hard. So the married, stay single if you can. Here's the thing. I need to go back. I did this in the first service. Click two slides back. I don't know why I did this. Go two slides back. It's very important. While the Bible allows for the allowance uh, of remarriage in those circumstances of death and the remarriage of another spouse, listen to me. Marriage is never commanded. Listen, in all circumstances, marriage is never commanded, but it is always a concession for sexual immorality. Did you know that? So singleness is the, is the best. But if you're going to die in your lust and in your passions, then Paul says, and is in full agreement with, with God and with Christ, that you should get married. And so if you can't contain your passions, don't burn with passion, get married. And so it's a concession. That is true of, of widows. Widows, if, if, and that's why Paul says, hey, be careful. Don't put younger widows on the widow list because they're going to burn with passion. They're going to have sexual desire, and it would be better that they get married than, than burn with passion. And so we need to understand that and recognize that. Now, the next group we need to look at, and I need to get moving here, is the model marriage. What's the model marriage? First Corinthians, write this passage down, 7, 1 through 5. It's not a perfect marriage. It's a model marriage. What does that marriage look like? It is found in the marriage bed. The conjugal rights that, that the spouses have. Now notice this. You say, well, marriage isn't all about sex. No, it's not, but it's a picture. And the picture of sexual intimacy is a man giving all of who he is, body, soul, and spirit, to his wife and giving her full ownership of that. And the wife giving full ownership of her body, soul, and spirit to the husband. And that is most clearly seen in the sexual union. Full transparency, full ownership where the two become one. You no longer own your body, a husband, your wife does. And wife, you no longer own your body, but the husband does. And so the model marriage is sacrifice. It is willingness to be fully transparent in that way. Well, we know that not all marriages are models, so let's talk about the messed up marriage. Some of you today find yourselves in a nightmare. And you are disheartened by your pastor's words. And my heart breaks for your situation. It really does. I wish you could hear my heart if you don't see it and hear it now. My heart is broken over broken marriages. But God, listen to me, God does not call us to marital comfort, but marital Christ-likeness. Now, some of you will say, didn't God divorce Israel? No. What happened was, is Israel remarried themselves to another man. And God says, if you're going to do that, you're going to pursue other gods, here's your certificate of divorce. But let me ask you something. Did God divorce his people? No. He sent his son to die for them. And what we do in nightmare marriages, as hard as it is, listen to me, people. Listen to me, my friends. In a nightmare marriage, if you want to pursue... Christ's likeness and listen to the words of Jesus, then your only goal in a night, nightmare marriage is to pursue reconciliation and pray and endure. Now you say, but wait a minute, Tim. My husband's abusing me. My husband is, is, is totally wreaking havoc in my life. If that is the case, then you have the concession to leave the house. Leave. And we as a church need to come around you and love on you. But it does not give you the right to tear apart what God has joined together. 
And so as a believer, you have to live out the beatitude kind of life. Number one, if you're living in a nightmare marriage, you understand, first of all, you're poor in spirit. My husband may be lousy, but so am I. Okay? Merciful. My wife has wronged me, and, and you want me to show mercy? Yeah, that's what Jesus says. Uh, pure in heart. A peacemaker. One who is blessed for being persecuted. Those beatitudes aren't when things are good. Those beatitudes are characteristics of when we are being wronged, even in the context of marriage. Knowing that God is the biggest fan, that when you fight for your marriage, you have no one else but God who stands with you in solidarity and says, I will give all that I can to the changing of that man's life, that woman's life. Give it time. Reconcile. The spiritually mixed marriage. If you're married to an unbeliever, can you get a divorce? Nope. You stay. How do you not know if you won't win your spouse to the Lord? That's in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. You get to sanctify your spouse. So what Paul says is that if you're in a bad marriage, you are in the best possible place you can be for reconciliation to take place. Because your godliness will inevitably spill over to your husband or wife. So then finally, how about those two who are remarried? Because that's the ball game. I, I have just come out and told you that what Jesus is saying is Jesus is calling you an adulterer. Wow, powerful words. I will tell you that in, when I said that, there were some people in the first service that were not very happy with me. But that's what the scripture says. So what does that mean? If you have not... Pursued, if you've pursued remarriage according to the two points under point two, you're free to get married as a concession. But those who have not, who, who have remarried and, and, and not under those two clauses, well, the Bible says you've committed adultery. It's plain in the text. But here's what you need to understand about this. And I'm going to give these truths and we're going to close in prayer. First of all, your present marriage is a real marriage. So honor God with it with all your heart. Okay? But Tim, I, I have this past. Well, that's fine. You're married to this new husband. You are really married. So be the best wife, be the best husband in the context that you are. Okay? That, that's no question about that. Second, I'm in my first marriage. And, and here's the thing. As a, as a pastor, I'm in my first marriage, and I confess before you that I, too, am an adulterer. Not because of my marital status, but because lust has gotten the best of me at times in my past. So if you feel beat up, at least you can say, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I may be an adulterer and so is my pastor. Okay? So you're not by yourself. Number three, the Bible says that all sins are forgivable, including the sin of divorce and remarriage. So take God's forgiveness, repent of your sins, and give it to God who says he is faithful and just to forgive you. Just as he is with anger, just as he is with stealing, just as he is with adultery. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And John chapter 8, write that passage down. John chapter 8 shows us how Jesus interacts with a woman caught in adultery. And he says the following. While men were wanting to stone her because the law of Moses commanded that they did so, Jesus tells the woman, this church tells you who have committed adultery, that we're all sinners in this place and that God does not condemn, but he commands for you and I, for all of us to go and sin no more. 
And so you can have the full assurance of faith that whatever your past may bring, the grace of Almighty God is there to cover it and to condemn no more. So we as your church should not condemn as well. Repent, seek forgiveness. If you are able, pursue reconciliation and make the present marriage as God-honoring, whether it's your first, second, fifth, or hundredth marriage. Make it the best that it can be. Let's pray. Lord, I'm exhausted. And in my exhaustion, Lord, I, I pray that my words have been clear. Lord, you know that I love these people. That it's my family. Lord, and I don't just love the first married people. But I'm, I love all of them. And they are good and righteous people, Lord. Because like me, they have been washed by your blood. And so, Lord, I drop my stones and I pray that all of us would drop our stones and we would embrace Jesus. Because it is Jesus who cleanses us from our sins. So, Lord, let us embrace that grace. But let us not embrace that grace by coming up with, with uh, schemes and ideas of how to uh, turn a blind eye to our sin because that's why grace is so costly. Because it, it went to our greatest need and it took Jesus dying on the cross and forgiving us of all these sins, not making it easier, but dealing with sin once and for all. And Lord, I pray that in our marriage, wherever we may be, that we would be humble in recognizing that we all miss the mark and we all need you in our marriages and in our lives. So forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Not just this week's sin that we're dealing with, but all of our sins. Let us be quick to confess our sins one to another and especially to you, Lord, who is the only one who can forgive us and cleanse us of the unrighteousness we have. Lord, let us stand with our head held high, knowing that we are saved by grace, so that we may go on and serve you and love you and show the world what a true follower of Jesus Christ is all about. Holiness and godliness and living out the commands of God no matter how hard they may be. So, Lord, empower us, empower each of us this week, whether single or widowed, married, divorced, remarried. Empower us to live by your Spirit so that we may abide in your truth. In Christ's name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen.